Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. There was a covenant made with Abraham, quite a, a famous, well-known covenant that I said is the basis which takes us back in our Christianity and, and definitely in Judaism to the very beginning of our faith. And in this covenant, God promises uh, Abraham that he will bless him and he will bless uh, the whole world through him. And I just want to remind you, if you were here whenever we went through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, that there was some promises made to mankind uh, at the very beginning, chapter 1 of Genesis. God created man and woman, and he stood back, and he, and he admired his work, and he said, and the Bible says, he blessed them. And when he blessed them, there was two things he said that they would be blessed with. He said, I'll bless you that you can... Uh, multiply and fill the earth and then I'll bless you so that every seed bearing plant will be yours to eat and so it was uh, reproduction and food he would bless them with it was kind of general blessings but when we come to Abraham the blessings get more specific than this so it builds on the original blessings it dovetails with the original blessings and we track through those first 11 chapters of Genesis the encroachment of sin into the world because we start off with a perfect world. Adam and Eve created, they're in the Garden of Eden, everything is wonderful, but then at the temptation of the enemy and the failure of Adam and Eve and the curse of sin coming upon the world, then as you read through those first 11 chapters, you see progressively how the world gets worse and worse as sin infects it. So this covenant here in chapter 12 marks the place where God steps in to the degeneration of the world due to sin and he begins the process of restoring the world. We don't see the beginning of that process of restoration whenever they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We, knowing the whole story now, look back and we anticipate what's coming. Well, God's going to make it right. But this marks the place where we see a plan where God begins to say, this is how I'm going to bring a restoration, a rescue from the fall. So he makes a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant, we see the plans of the restoration. It enhances those blessings of Genesis 1. Not only were they blessed with the promise of reproduction in Genesis 1, but here God says more specifically to Abram, said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, do, do you see the difference between just saying I'll bless you with the ability to, to have a family to, to God saying from you I'm going to bring, back, bring about an entire nation. That's an enhancement of this blessing. And this covenant was based on Abraham's part of his promise, his challenge, leave it all behind and follow me. And that's what Abra, Abram, 
Abraham, Abram was willing to do so that he could have the appreciation and the fulfillment of the covenant. So now with this expanded blessing that not only will I bless you to reproduce, but you will become a great father of many nations. And he's not just going to make sure that there's fruit hanging on an occasional tree in some garden. And he's not just making them a promise that there's going to be a nice garden to provide for them. No, he's not going to give them a tree. He's not going to give them a garden. He says to Abraham, I'm going to give them a country-sized garden. That's a big garden. And he said, this country I'm going to give you, the world will be blessed through you. This country I'm going to give you later, this, this country-sized garden, he says, is, is a place that is so rich, it's flowing with milk and with honey, and, and the produce that you can grow there is just indescribable. So you see how it enhances those blessings. The, we never see the full dimensions of God's blessings until they begin to overflow. We might have the promise of his blessings, but God just blows you away when we see the unfolding of those blessings and we say, I never had any clue it was going to be this good, this big. And then we have the, the covenant, and I want to draw your attention to the scope of the covenant Three aspects of the covenant blessing. First, he said, Abraham, you will, be, you will be blessed. Second, he said to Abraham, you will be a blessing to others. And then third, he says, you will be a channel through which I can bless others. Two of these are conditional and the third one is not. So let me share this with you. God says, I'll bless Abram and family and this technically means if you follow me if you obey me if you stay faithful I will bless you because if Abram would have stayed where he was and not moved to Canaan number one blessing is out I'm not going to bless you if you stay here you have to leave you have to follow me so it's conditional number two Abram and your family you're going to be a blessing to others because of the position of favor with God. But once again, if Abram didn't move, if he didn't commit that, not only would he not be blessed, but he would not be able to be a blessing to others. Conditional. Number three, through Abram and his family, God said all the people will receive blessings from God. Now, Abram could have failed. He could have failed to have the blessing for himself. He could have failed to be a blessing for others. But God promised without condition nevertheless through you or we might say even if necessary in spite of you I will bless the entire world now have you ever heard anybody say I just wish I could be used of God I just wish God would flow through me well that's nice but do you realize that God works through a God works through donkeys? What big deal is it to be used of God? You know, God flowed and through and used Samson, but Samson was a scamp and a scoundrel. So you're not setting your goals very high if your only goal is God use me. You know, you want to be in the place where not only does God flow through you to somebody else but where God blesses you you've got to be in a right place 
and just be an instrument that he uses might be, I mean, he used the jawbone of a donkey. He, he, might, he might use you and toss you aside because you're not worth anything else. You don't want to be just a tool. You want to be somebody who is blessed, who not only is blessed, but can in turn be a blessing to others. So make your prayer a little higher than simply, Jesus use me. Jesus work through me. Jesus do a work in me is vitally important and more important than just work through me, work in me. Then we get to the religion of Abram. I start in verse 6 of the 12th chapter. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on to the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram answers God's call, we're going to pick it up from that point where Abram answers God's call to move out of the, or the Chaldees. And this journey to leave there and not stop where his father had stopped, but to journey on to this place that, that God is going to give him that we now know as the promised land, a journey of about 500 miles. And if they manage to move the family and set up camp and break camp and move every day and make 20 miles, it's going to take them about a month to go 500 miles. But here they go. And once he enters the land, then he stops at some tree. We don't know anything about this tree. It's just it, it was a significant tree, probably had some significance to the people who read this. Or, uh, but he, he stops here at Shechem, and he builds an altar and worships the Lord. He goes down the road a little ways and he stops at Bethel and he uh, builds an altar and worships the Lord. Yeah, keep in mind, this, this is a man that doesn't know a whole lot about Jehovah God. Uh, he knows nothing about a church. <laughs> I mean, what we do in worshiping the Lord is the church. There was no concept whatsoever of a church. There was no concept whatsoever in, in Abram that... Uh, on Saturday or on Sunday, we're going to set that aside as the Lord's Day. We're all going to go gather together. They just had a, an, a, an awareness of God, and when they felt inspired, they stopped and worshiped him. And sometimes they built altars when they did, did that. So their religion was so uh, functionally different from ours. And uh, he probably had the habit of building altars to his idols. That was a carryover from his other religion. He knew how to build altars. So he learned how to do that in idolatry and, and he figured that was the highest honor to the one true God. So he stops and he, he builds altar there. But some scholars look at this and they suggest that there may have been more to building these altars than just having a place to worship because it appears as though in studying the background of this that building an altar was a, a symbol, it was a statement that I am claiming 
this territory. So he stops at one place and builds an altar, and he said, I'm claiming this. He goes a little farther down, and he sees more land and builds another altar. He said, I'm claiming this too. If this is true, and I think it is feasible to believe that, if this is true, Abram was not only worshiping the Lord, but he was in faith and obedience claiming the land that God had promised him. People would see somebody has been here, They've done something, they built something, so therefore they must be laying claim to this lamb. Now, we're always supposed to worship God for who he is. That is undeniable. But sometimes we find that it's easier to break into worship for the things that he has done. I've seen it many times. God performs a miracle for someone, and they just want to to pause and worship him. You've done that, people. If God has ever done anything in your life, pulled a rabbit out of the hat for you, then you're happy at that point. You want to do something to honor God. So you might sing a little song to entertain the Lord, or you might just raise your hands and, and praise him, or, or you might shout something, well, glory. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you do, but you know, you get happy for what he's done for you, and you praise him, and you worship him. It just so happened so often in the Bible that when Jesus toured the country, uh, healing the sick and raising the dead, you read that time and again, when Jesus would get done what he did, they shouted, they danced, they gave glory to the Lord for what he's done. But here is an instance of worshiping God. And like I said, you always have to worship God for who he is and not just for what he does. But we do worshiping for what he does. But here, he's worshiping God for what he believes he's going to do. Now, my challenge to you is how often have you done that? We are tempted to save our worship after the fact. Before it comes, we don't get too happy because we're afraid it may not happen and then we're going to look like fools. But Abram was worshiping God and not for what he had done so much. And I'm sure for who he was, but he didn't know a lot about who he was. But he was worshiping him in praise and looking forward to what he was going to do because he's going to give me this land. Now, worship doesn't always follow God's handiwork. Sometimes it's important for worship to precede God's work. And I'm not trying to suggest some kind of manipulative formula that makes God answer your prayers. Those of you who know me know that I, I wouldn't suggest that. You can't manipulate God. But I can tell you this. You are perfectly in order worshiping God for the promises that he has given you, though he has not yet performed them. He's worthy of what he is going to do. Lord, you're worthy of what you've done, for what, you've do, what you're doing, and what you're going to do. God, I think, is impressed when you worship him for his promises. And here's the thing about it. You don't even have to know what he's going to do. I mean, we know that God is always working. We know that there are great things coming from God. So if you're pondering, well, how can I worship him for what he's going to do when I don't even know he's going to do it? Because God does good things all the time. So you might as well get in the mentality, Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do. I can't wait to find out what it's going to be. 
You'll never be disappointed. When you approach God with this dimension of just believing, he always does good things. There are great things yet in my future. I want you to get a hold of this. There are great things yet in your future God is going to do for you. You don't even know what they are. It's perfectly in order for you to get busy today thanking him for what he's going to do until he reveals it to you. Then you can continue to praise him for what you see he has done. But thank him for what he's going to do. How many of you know that life has its detours? You've got life all planned out. And, and some of us just like life in apple pie order. And no matter how well you plan, it seems like life throws you a curve every once in a while. Oops, I didn't see that one coming. That doesn't seem to quite fit in with how I th had things planned out. Whether it's a, a, a financial obstacle that you hit, whether it's a health crisis you're going through, something happens that it just wasn't what you had in mind. I mean, I could give you a lot of examples. I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of examples. But in my mind, when Ann and I had our three boys and we quit having kids, you know, I had this vision. We'll never have to buy diapers or strollers again. I didn't factor in grandkids. I had no idea this was going to keep going, so it really threw a curveball in my plans. And it will take the little nursery that's always been the boys and it will convert it into my office or my... I don't get that. As long as there's grandkids and great-grandkids, I'm never going to have that. Now that's reality. <laughs> car seats. I thought we threw the last car seat out. It's not happening. Life's got detours. Now there was famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. That's all I have to read for you to get a hold of what's going on here. This is an interesting little bit of information. Abram is called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. Follow me, God says, and I'll take you to, to a land and I will give you this land. So that's what Abram's plans are. This is wonderful. He's going to lead me into the land. He's going to give me this land. He gets there, and it is, and famine hits the land. And the next thing that Abram has to do is move out of the land that God has given him. What's with that? Can you not see the curve in life's road for Abram? Can you not see the detour that it has to, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how Abram dealt with that, but I know how I would deal with something like that. What gives, God? You make me leave my home, come here, and promise to give me a country, and I get over here, and you can't grow anything because there's no water. And it's so severe. The land you gave me, the famine is so severe, I have to go to a completely another country and live with them. How does any of this make sense? First of all, I'm going to argue, God, you're big enough to break this famine, and you're not doing it, and I don't understand you. And, and this is the country you're giving me, and I get over here, 
and I can't even live here. It's inha- uninhabitable. And all of these things, because, you know, when we don't understand God's ways, those are the kind of questions we ask God. Why? What is going on? I had a man sit in my living room a few days ago. He said, I've got a theological question for you. Sure. He said, and it, I mean, he asked a question, but here's the question. Why? <laughs> That's a you know, he had two or three or four or five instances in his life and he didn't understand why things were happening to him. But that was the question. Why this? Why this? Why this? Why this? And I said, I don't know. I don't have answers for your why. You want a list of whys? Let me pull mine out. I've got as many whys as you do. I do not understand the whys in life. We're going to get over there and face God one of these days, and if we get a chance, and if it really means anything to us, we'll have a chance to ask why when we get there. But I cannot give you the answer to most of the struggles and the trials and the, and the unexpected things that come into my life. I just can't do it. And what I said, it, it's not about understanding the why. It's about being faithful to God regardless of whether you understand why or not. Don't let it break your faith. Abram, I'm going to imagine, had to have some mental struggles with why am I being forced to move out of the land that Jehovah God has given me? And now he has to answer to his family, who his family has likely never heard one word from this invisible God that Abraham keeps hearing from. So they're following him, and he's telling his family, we're going to move into this land. God's going to give us this land. It's going to be our land. He gets over there and said, well, we need to move. It's not working out here. How's the family feel about that? Are they beginning to have doubts in his ability to lead the family? Are they losing their trust in him? They go to Egypt. It's easy to miss the depth of this story because the narrative moves so quickly but you're beginning to understand the background this land that he's going to give to the heirs what what do they want with with desert place that that you can't grow anything and how can you can't call this a land that is fruitful and productive we're we're in the middle of this huge famine here the pathways to God's promises are filled with detours they are never straight lines from point A to point B God gives you a promise and you have to go in these circuitous routes to ever see the fulfillment of it and it's, that's the part we don't understand we think God gives a promise he moves us over here bang it's done but God takes you on these weird routes in fulfillment of receiving the promise that he has given unexpected turns here and there we do interpret those detours as the end of the promise. When we get a detour, well, the promise is over. Evidently, I didn't hear from God. Or evidently, he changed his mind because this is not going the direction I intended it to go at all. Or this next thing we do is we second-guess ourselves. Well, maybe I didn't hear God correctly. Maybe this was my own imagination, and I just think God told. We begin to have all these doubtful thoughts. Maybe we even think God abandoned his promises. I've done something, he's angry with me, now I don't get the promise. Maybe I did something to offend him, I don't know. But Abram, 
forced to leave the land, go to another country, and we're not told a lot about his, his feelings, but it appears as though when it's all said and done, he handled all these detours without losing his faith. That's the important thing. Don't let the detours destroy your faith. We don't always fare as well as Abram did. Sometimes the smallest detours tend to unravel us. I've seen that so many times in my life. My relationship with God, other people's relationship with God that I counsel with, they got their plans all made and it just doesn't work out like they thought it ought to work out. Then that's when your faith is tested. Sometimes the smallest detours just mess with us. Our attention span is so short and our patience runs thin and our faith is easily shaken. And Jesus, when he got on this boat, and I'm going to jump over to those story you're all familiar with, told his disciples, let's go to the other side. Sounds like a simple plan, doesn't it? To get in the boat, let's go to the other side. Who would have known that this storm was going to mess with their plans? Life is full of challenges. It's full of detours. It's full of unexpected things that come up. But God still has an overarching plan to get you where he planned on taking you. You just got to be expected to see some of these things. God's plan is not just a straight line between point A and point B. And most of the time, God's plan, God's promises, is some kind of a winding path that doesn't make any sense half the time you're on it. Lord, why the famine? Poor timing, Lord. You could have waited till after the famine to bring us here, Lord. You can heal this famine. Why don't you stop the famine, Lord? All of these things I'm sure I would have been asking. But if this teaches us anything, it teaches us that even when we're rock, walking right in the middle of God's will, you're going to have struggles, and you're going to have detours, and you're going to have inconveniences, and you can't buy into the mistaken notion that the center of God's will is problem-free and smooth sailing. It just isn't. Now we come down to what I call the scandal. Abram, the great father of our faith, we look up to him, Father Abram. And he was about to enter Egypt. And he said to his wife, Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah as we now know them. And he says to Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Wives always like to hear that, don't they? And he says to Sarah, my concern is when the Egyptians see you, they're going to take you from me. And I'm the only thing standing in the way of them having you, so they'll probably kill me. So therefore, from this day forward, as we go forward into Egypt, tell everybody you're my sister. <laughs> and so that way, they won't be threatened and they'll treat me well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Have you just seen what Abraham did? let's make this pact, let's lie. And what was he thinking? 
If he says, my wife is really my sister, what does he think they're going to do then? Well, they're going to take her. They're going to take his wife. This plan doesn't work. You know what the good part about this is? When Abram turns to Sarai, when Abraham turns to Sarah, and he says, my goodness, you still are a gorgeous woman. She was 65 years old. (laughs) That had to make her feel good. And he says, you are so good looking. They will take you from me. She must have been one well-preserved babe. Because sure enough, they enter the land and they met Abraham and Sarah and they run back to the king and say, you should have seen that woman we just saw. And the king says, I want that woman. Now, now, so far, Abraham's plan is working just like he planned it, but it's not good. So basically, what Abraham does is he gives his okay for his wife slash sister to move into the palace and he rents her out so he doesn't get killed. Father of our faith. I don't know what Abram's end game was here. what, What is he going to do? He negotiated a trade to give his wife away under the guise that it was just his sister. And he, and he takes some livestock and some servants in return. You can have my wife and I'll take them. What's he doing? This guy is messing up. I, he was my hero up until this point. I, I guess he thinks that somewhere along the line, after the famine was over, he was going to go and get Sarah, and they were both going to sneak out in the middle of the night. I don't know what else they were thinking of. And furthermore, I read this, and if you're anything like me, I am somewhat disillusioned with Father Abraham for being so sneaking and so conniving. And how can such a corrupt person be considered the great father of our faith? Now, that's the point I want to get you to, because this is important to listen to. We are at risk of drawing faulty conclusions from this story that do not serve us well in our Christianity. First, we might be tempted to think that we all have flaws and God's okay with all of it because Abram had have flaws and look at him. And that's a faulty conclusion. God was not happy with that. We just know because of God's record that he would not have two standards and say, we don't want you to lie. We don't want you to bear false witness, but I was okay with Abram giving his wife away. We know God would not have been happy. Even though there was no commentary associated with this narrative making any moral judgment about this. Second, and this is slightly related to the first point, we might think that because it is in the Bible, listen to me, people, because it's in the Bible 
we are justified in doing the same thing. Well, Abraham did it. I can do it. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of phrases here. You know, if we think Abram can tell a little white lie because it saved his life, we can tell a little white lies too. I want you to know the difference. Here's the two phrases I'm going to give you. The first one is kind of a, a scholarly way of saying it. When you read the Bible, you have to know the difference between what is what we call informative and normative. They're not the same. Now, normative is not a word that most people would be real familiar with. So I'm going to change those terms to something a little more familiar. You, when you read the Bible, you have to understand the, t the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. And that still maybe is a little bit muddy, but I'm going to unpack it for you. Both things mean the same thing. Normative and informative, they're different. Descriptive and prescriptive, they're different. But they both mean the same, both phrases mean the same thing. And that is, if I read something in the Bible, is it just describing what happened? Or is it telling me you should pattern your life after this? That's the difference between being descriptive and prescriptive. And so many people are so shallow in their understanding of God's word, they think everything in the Bible is prescriptive. Well, after all, King David had an affair. That's not prescriptive. That's not what he's asking you to do. It's descriptive. It's an honest account of the failures of people that we're supposed to learn from. This is an honest account of what Abram did. And the reason I bring this up is because I said when people read the Bible and they don't know the difference between prescriptive, descriptive, and prescriptive, and then they said, well, Abraham had many wives. Well, King David had many wives. Well, Solomon had a thousand concubines. Well, so what? You cannot use those things to justify and say that God must be okay with it. Because why? The difference between descriptive and prescriptive. They do not prescribe that you behave in the same way. And to further muddy the waters, we read this about Abram, and we find, shockingly, that this narrative doesn't include this clear moral commentary on his actions. It doesn't say clearly right next to it. Now, Abram made a pact with his wife to tell a lie and misrepresent her, but God was not happy with that. See, that part is missing. So when we read it and we don't see this moral commentary on it, we think, well, how, how must God have felt about that? I'll tell you how God felt. And the Egyptians, who were not even people who served God, started having trouble. There was this curse that was coming on the land, and they couldn't understand why things weren't going along as they were supposed to be going along. And finally, uh, when they found out that Sarah was actually his wife, they said, there's the problem right there. Call that man in here. God is cursing us because we got another man's wife here. It took the Egyptians to figure that out. And they call it Abram. What are you trying to do? You're destroying our country. Abram said, I was afraid you would kill me. And so they escorted him out of the country. He was no good for Egypt. Forced him back into his own. Don't come in here and bring your mess with you. But you have to remember, Abram was still developing his relationship with God. He had a lot of burrs that had to be sanded off. God was more interested at this point 
in Abram's life that he stayed focused on the promise and he stayed faithful than he was in perfecting all of his character flaws at one time. God, Abram was a piece of work. And yes, he had flaws. And yes, God was going to sand those, those burrs off eventually. But at this point, the only thing in this stage of his walk that God was interested in is don't lose your faith and stay faithful to me. I'll take care of the other stuff later. Do you hear what I'm telling you, people? Everybody has to grow in God. I don't know what stage of life you're in, but everybody has to grow in God. And sometimes we Christians get impatient with other people. We think they ought to be more perfect than they are. Well, maybe they're not where God uh, wants them to be yet, but he's getting them there. And you have to be willing to grow, and you have to be willing to let God grow. And as a pastor, I can tell you this. I don't say this to to cast a pall on this sermon or uh, bring a gloomy cloud over. I'm just telling you this. It's getting to the point in church, in Christianity, where it's a whole lot easier to get the unsaved saved than it is to get the saved doing better. We get saved and we sit and we park. And that's where we are and that's all the farther we're going to go for the rest of our Christian life. And that is a sad thing. Because I preach to get people to be convicted for not being farther down the road than they are. For not growing in God. We all have to grow. I, I, am, I am not done growing in God. I don't feel like I've hardly started growing in God. But I certainly can't park where I am. I know that we've all got a ways to go. The problem is, is if you're not growing... When you first start your journey, like Abram did, you're going to have issues. Of course you are. And everybody who comes and starts serving the Lord, they probably have stuff in their life that they have to get worked out. I understand that. You may come into a saving relationship with God and you still got habits that you have developed a lifetime perfecting. And you have to get rid of these things. God can work these things out. I understand that. What I don't understand is 10 years later, you still have the same issues and you haven't made any progress. Now, you're going to have problems all your life, but they better not be the same problems you have today. You better trade them for different ones. (laughs) Bigger ones. You know, God starts with the small stuff. How many of you here have taken Dave Ramsey's uh, financial course? The snowballing thing, you know, how you how you going to pay off your debt according to his? You're going to pay off the little ones first. Why? Because it makes you feel like you're making progress. Well, that's, see, God invented this. Dave Ramsey didn't invent this. He just adapted it. God wants to start with you, and he wants to start taking care of the small stuff in your life first. You say, i got some big issues, God. God says, don't worry. We'll get to those. But in order to make you feel like you're making spiritual progress, we're going to start with the small stuff first and start knocking that out of your life. But if you're 10 years later, you still have all your small stuff, you're not trying. You need to get with it. If you're not growing, quite simply, it's not acceptable. Abram has to pack up Sarah, move back out of Egypt, back into his homeland, and God continues to work in his life to bring him along. He is the father of our faith. He is an example of what it means to serve God with flaws in your life. To struggle with wondering where God is leading us. Here I am 
devoting my life to God, trying to live the Christian life, and why are things going wrong with me? I'll tell you why things are going wrong with you. One of the reasons is probably because you're trying to follow God. And it's a perilous road to walk, the road to the promise. Bow your heads.